Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those, those, those boys. That's yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that. Really. Well, you can laugh. I was the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I wanted to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm down to one field and we'll see them all. What you doing down here, you shawnee man? Oh, it's Evan and Ken Early here with your first Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast of the Week. Ken, how are you? Good, Owen. How are you? Not too bad. Uh, almost caught out there. You're drinking tea. Drinking uh, some sugary tea yeah, there. It's all right. So energy levels are good. Yeah. Well, we can speak better. about energy levels. Yeah, getting better. It's good to hear, Ken. Sounds like you're you're with us for the long haul here. I take it you enjoy. Yeah, I know you're a sucker for a good goal celebration. Yes. So I take it you enjoyed Wayne Rooney knocking himself out with a quick flurry of punches at Old Trafford yesterday. Yeah. Although I saw that some uh, far-sighted people on Twitter had had tweeted that morning. Oh, how inevitable it, it is that Wayne Rooney will score and do some boxing-related celebration. And lo, uh, it came to pass. Um, yeah, I thought it was good. I thought his uh, I thought his fall was quite convincing. And I thought um, his... I, I thought in the video, he's not really knocked out. Okay, so the video is himself and ex-teammate, apparently still friend, um, Phil, Phil Barsley, rugged... Rugged, Phil Bar- rugged northerner Phil Bardsley mm-hmm. is um, sparring with Wayne Rooney. It looks like late at night. It looks like it's it's an evening. It's an evening in Wayne time Rooney's spar kitchen. In Wayne Rooney's kitchen, quite a few voices there. It seems like a few friends there filming this. And the, you, Wayne Rooney's back is to the camera, so you don't fully see the impact of the punch that takes him out. But it looks like a sort of a straight left from Bardsley. Bang! Rooney's head hit, hits the deck. Yeah, um, Rooney falls falls on you don't the back think it in, was in the same way. No, I don't think so because I think when you look at the video, you can see his arms are moving. Uh, he's got his arms braced slightly down in just the way an unconscious person isn't able to do, um, which is the reason why he can fall on what looks like a tiled surface. Could be marble. Still not a very clever idea. He still fell down in at, at quite a, a pace. And there was a table or a chair, something in behind him that his head avoided by inches. I would, I would have said it's not a great idea for a professional footballer to be sparring with another professional footballer in, in a tiled, on a tiled floor. I think we can say that's definitely true. It's not, it's not actually that good an idea. You probably should, shouldn't do it. I mean, when you, when you add up the, uh, all the little marginal risk factors, is it really worth it uh, considering um, you know, your, your importance? Uh, to the the hopes and dreams of 650 million Manchester United fans, uh, is it really worth toying with their hopes and dreams in such a way? I mean, even if there's only the smallest fraction of a chance, 
um, that you could uh, end up slipping over and, and smashing your head off the um, the uh, the kitchen floor. Mm. Is it really worth it? No, probably not. On the other hand, if, you know, does Wayne Rooney care? Clearly not. Uh, I don't think that he was knocked out. Though I thought he was pretending to have been in order to obtain comic effect. This is what was tweeted by Phil Barsley's wife, I think. They say, say, oh, video doesn't show Wayne jumping up and having a laugh with Phil immediately afterwards. Clever edit. Um, so, I, I mean, to be honest, I thought that that was what had happened. I mean, you saw when he fell on the pitch, it was the same type of fall. It's obviously something he can do. And uh, in both instances, he uses his arms. He, it's not like he's got his arms out behind him. He just has them a little bit out a little bit to the side, just so that when you fall, they're, they're taking the impact and not, you know, your head. Breaking news this afternoon, Ken. Gus Poye, his party company with Sunderland, after the club decided to fast forward plans to replace him in the summer, reading this here on The Guardian, who were reporting earlier on that this was going to happen. Negotiations are underway to bring in Dick Advoca, the 67 year old former Rangers manager who's out of work after stepping in as Serbia's coach last November. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on in more detail. Your initial reaction? Um, well, it's not, it's not a surprise that, that uh, Gus Poyet has been sacked. Um, maybe it's a surprise that they think Dick Advocat is going to be uh, is going to be the answer. Uh, this is a guy who's uh, most famous as a ma- as a manager for a uh, his period with Rangers, I suppose. I mean, well, it, yeah, you, you know, well, there's a couple of things that, that Dick Advocat is, is known for. In Holland, his his country of birth, he's probably most famous for taking off Iron Robin in the game against the Czech Republic in Euro 2004, uh, which Holland, if I remember correctly, led 2-0 and ended up losing 3-2. And he took off Iron Robin, uh, who was playing really well, because he thought Robin was making... It was just all a bit too open. It was, you know, when a manager, as, as Louis van Gaal might say, my ass was twitching. Well, Dick Advocate's ass was twitching. And uh, he took Iron Robin off because there was there was too many moments when it looked as though Robin might be about to score a goal or, or set up a goal for a teammate, and this caused the mass uh, national outrage uh, back uh, back in the Netherlands. And pretty much that was the end of Dick Advocat in terms of his uh, being taken seriously by his countrymen at Rangers. He was a successful manager who presided over time when Rangers obviously were spending quite a lot of money. It turned out they didn't really, it wasn't really theirs to spend. Um, and then I suppose he was with Zenit. Zenit won the uh, Europa League, which was a good achievement for them. But again, you know, a, a Gazprom fueled, uh, you know, you're talking about a team that's throwing money at a at a problem. And that's the kind of teams that Advocat has, has been more successful. And that definitely won't be what's happening at Sunderland. Interestingly, Poye took first team training at the academy this morning uh, before being summoned to have his fate sealed apparently at a meeting with the top brass of the club I always find those with the amount of sympathy that should be meted out to any Premier League manager a lot of people would say should be limited they, they get well paid they get well paid off and he'll probably get another pretty good job but on a human level it must be a strange situation to be walking in training knowing you're going through the motions here you're about to be dragged in and kicked out very shortly afterwards. Well, however bad it feels, I doubt it feels quite as uncomfortable as the experience of actually standing on the sideline uh, as Aston Villa's fourth goal uh, goes in before halftime. <laughs> and you're you're standing there with the Sunderland supporters in the home ground. You're 4-0 down. Who knows what the second half is going to bring. Sunderland did already lose. Was it was it 8-0 to Southampton? I mean, what was the score? Right. That I can't, can't quite remember. That. I mean, it was a, another ridiculous uh, scoreline that they suffered already this season. So, you know, 
I imagine that was probably the worst bit. Being humiliated in front of 40,000 people entire town. is more embarrassing than <laughs> having to grab your bags and leave. Yeah, I mean, I, to be honest, Gus Poyet is probably a bit of a spring to step. You know, where to? If I was Gus Poyet, I'd, I'd be thinking straight to the airport. You know, I'm just going to pick a destination at random from, uh, you, know, I, I don't, you know, this is great. I, this is no longer my problem. Whatever, whatever the payoff terms are, you know, Gus is a, is a proud man. I don't mean to, to make it sound as though, you know, he's a personal friend of mine or whatever. Gus, it's just his name. I'm not on first name terms with this guy. He's a proud man. Uh, this is going to, he's going to be hurting. But I wouldn't be surprised, Owen, if a little bit of him was also quite happy that this misery has come to an end. We'll ask Jonathan Wilson a bit later where that all went wrong for him. It's time now for Kennedy's Report on Sport. Now, we've been talking a lot lately, Owen, about the BBC. Oh, bail. How have I forgotten the second B? Benzema. Benzema. (laughs) Poor Benzema. Always a forgotten B (laughs) in the BBC. Uh, But uh, the other BBC has come into the sights of Marca. Marca is the uh, gigantic Spanish sports newspaper which has been thrashing uh, Gareth Bale uh, in recent weeks. And to a lesser extent, the others as well. Um, But now has turned its uh, fire on the other BBC, the one in uh, Britain the British Broadcasting Corporation. Uh, uh, the crime uh, of the BBC on this occasion is to have printed a... Well, not printed, to have put on their website a an article by uh, Andy West. I think the guy's name is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Andy West. Um, a misguided article, as Mark now claims it, uh, talking about Bale being a loner uh, and, ha- and being kind of a persecuted figure in Spain. Um, unloved by his teammates, derided by the media, with Marca at the fore. Essentially, he was making the claim that Marca was having a big go at Gareth Bale as a way of getting at Fiorentino Perez, the Madrid president, who previously themselves and Marca have always been getting on with each other quite closely. I mean, they've almost been printing whatever it is he tells them to print. Uh, According to this article, that relationship is, is not as good as it was. And here's Marco. Because Bale is a guy who Perez signed, and Perez had said in, in a press conference only last week, he said, when I signed Bale, oh, I mean, when we signed Bale. So they're saying, oh, Bale is, you know, Perez's pet, mm. and we're going to have a big go at him as a, he's a proxy. You see what I mean? We want to have a go directly at the president. This was, this, was the artic- this was the argument of the article. Anyway, Marco don't like this. Recently, the BBC, I mean, this is, this, is trans, this is on the market English website, this is their translation of their own article. Recently, the BBC, recognised the world over for its standards since it was founded a few years after the First World War, has veered off the course that made it a byword for quality journalism throughout the 20th century. The demise has been made evident through incidents both great and small. In the latter camp come such bloopers as mixing up the Italian and Bulgarian flags at the beginning of the current rugby Six Nations. The alleged cover-up of sexual abuse of minors perpetrated by one of the BBC's former stars, presenter Jimmy Savile, is obviously of a far more serious nature. An example that hits closer to home involves the recent accusations about Marca and our supposed agenda against Gareth Bale, according to which we've unfairly criticised the former Tottenham forward in order to score points against Real Madrid President Fiorentino Perez. On Saturday, a misguided article by Andy West claimed not holding any punches, pulling any punches, I guess. Sure that this newspaper had launched a campaign against the Welshman, deciding to make Bale the victim of a brutal assassination. 
And now Perez is learning the dangers of taking on the media, who can always have the final word in any argument, because Marco have responded by aiming their ire squarely at the man who is widely perceived as Perez, a personal favourite. Bale added the article, which was given pride of place on the BBC Sport website. These comments were not only wholly unfounded and unjust, all the information published about Bale had been duly sourced and corroborated, but they also twisted things out of context. This is because the analysis of Bale featured in West Peace was just one part of some 20 pages of coverage over two days, looking at Real Madrid's struggles, in which other individuals and problems related to the team as a whole were discussed at length. For the record, Market does not engage in campaigns. It informs readers rigorously. Something that apparently can no longer be said of the BBC, who, like ITV, seem now to be all about drama. So, so, I mean, that's amazing, amazing international press feud. This is not something you actually see very often. I should mention that Marcus' uh, standards of journalism are so high that the second most read story on their English language website after that one currently says is Bale covers his ears. Click on story. Photograph of Garrett Bale covering his ears. That's it. That's the entire story. Ah, oh, you know, he covers his ears in the. He scored a goal. He scored a goal against. Uh, covers his ears as in a, a, an FU to the critics. I'm not hearing the critics. Oh no, no, they do, they don't contextualize. They're just reporting. Right. Not, I mean, not that rigorous, I suppose. All they do is put a bait. Not a in. campaign either, necessarily, though. Just a guy putting no. his, ha- making a standard bodily. Movement. Yeah, it's it's it doesn't. It's kind of a con- contextless piece of information, which is um, really you would have you would have imagined that uh, the process of journalism should involve adding something something to that, uh, but they haven't bothered to do that. In that case, quite an amazing piece, really. I mean, why not just throw Jimmy Savile in there when you're talking about yeah. uh, when you're talking about the um, reasons why this criticisms of a footballer. Yeah. Um, uh, market doesn't campaign well I don't know I don't think a few people would, would probably disagree with that but uh, the good news for Garrett Bale uh, regardless of all that is they did at least manage to score two goals last night and these were his first goals for I think nine games uh, and it was a uh, let's say welcome break from what's been going on recently Cristiano Ronaldo didn't score uh, Ronaldo uh, was involved in the build-up to Bale's first goal. A bicycle kick that didn't quite come off the ball bounced to Bale, who who uh, volleyed it into the net, prompting Cristiano Ronaldo to... High-five his teammate in joy? No, to throw his uh, hands to the sky in a gesture of disbelief and disgust. <laughs> uh, then Ronaldo sort of ran into the box on the right-hand side and belted a shot towards goal, which hit Garrett Bale's foot on the way in and diverted into the net. Uh, Ronaldo ran off celebrating the goal as if he'd scored it. The announcer in the stadium then gave the goal to Bale. <sighs> so Ronaldo has uh, five goals in 2015, which I think is the same as Gareth Bale. Yeah. It, yeah, strange stuff going on there. I don't really understand why Ronaldo suddenly seems to be in such a bad mood. Uh, it's not a good look for him. I hadn't realised that, that it escaped my attention that the BBC had accidentally replaced the Italian flag with the Bulgarian flag. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know if it's the most serious uh, journalistic lapse that's ever <laughs> taken place. Uh, I mean, if, if they really... I mean, this is a, an attack piece by Marca on the BBC, and while certainly the um, the whole Jimmy Savile episode uh, isn't one that the BBC... Uh, that, that that reflects well on the BBC, that's that's certainly true. Whether, whether it belonged in, in, the, in this type of piece is, is certainly debatable. But if the Bulgaria-Italy mix-up was the the sort of the second item 
uh, that came to, to pass. And the BBC maybe uh, haven't done too, too bad a job uh, in the whole scheme of things since the First World War. I mean, you could argue that Marker aren't really in a, a great position to lecture uh, other media uh, organisations in any country about anything. Um Given the, given the nature of Spanish football coverage, which is quite remarkable. I mean, we've we've talked about this uh, with Sid Lowe on a number of occasions, and it does rather look in Spanish football as though you've got uh, essentially the newspapers organising themselves along party lines. It's almost like an old fashioned uh, an old fashioned kind of political landscape where you know you'd have the communist newspaper, which in which everything that uh, you know, uh, they, essentially, every, four legs good, two legs bad. Whatever it was, they were supposed to be uh, saying they, they would be they would be giving it from that point of view. I mean, this is kind of what you what you expected. You buy the newspaper because it's propaganda from a certain point of view, rather than because it will actually you know it's it's going to try and give some kind of idea of what's actually going on, untainted yeah. by untainted by bias. So you uh, treat their claim that they don't indulge in campaigns as somewhat. Of course, Jesus. I mean, I mean, what's what's uh, Fiorentino Perez? Fiorentino Perez did this press conference last week that we were talking about, where he actually was sort of having a go at uh, Mark. I mean, Sid's report has him talking about oh, the phrase he repeated the phrase: "There are those who do not love us often," um, and you know, attacking uh, various journalists. Um, you know, they're not going against Madrid. They're going talking about the kind of campaigns that the media organise. This is the, the president of Real Madrid. You know, this isn't like sort of Jose Mourinho. You know, uh, from from his distant position, you know, talking about these campaigns. This is actually Perez saying this. Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't. I, I have to say that I don't think the I don't think the way the Spanish football press is organised is good at all. I mean, you know, you've got you've got two sides. One of them is blatantly pro Madrid. One of them is blatantly pro Barcelona. Everything is interpreted in that light. Obviously, they feel that's the best way to serve their various markets. But I don't really think it's. I don't really think it's a credible model for journalism. I mean, it's it might be a, a good way for people to pass the time. I mean, Marca are, are, are... It certainly puts, puts Marca in a much weaker position when they're trying to launch this attack on the BBC. Yeah, I mean, they, they make this point that um, all of this stuff that they said about bail uh, has been, you know, sourced, duly sourced and cor- corroborated. And I'm sure they absolutely do. I'm sure that you read Marca and you will actually find out a lot of stuff that's going on that's really going on around Madrid. The problem is, how do you tell the difference between it and all the just made-up stuff? You know, where, how, given that, do they have uh, the, the true bits written in bold and the sort of filler bits written in, you know, I don't think you'd have to have quite a sophisticated news nose, you know, the sort of the truth truffle pig to sniffle, sniffle around in the uh, marker uh, text to try like and to, find the ones that you know the yeah. bits that are true. Do you remember the wise and old newspaper editor in The Wire in the final series of The Wire? Oh, the the kind of Rafa Benitez lookalike. Yeah, who that was guy. A real decent, decent skin. Real decent skin, but real understanding of news. That guy. Oh yeah, yeah. Just he always he had that look. He had that knowing look that I know a little bit more about this racket than anyone else yeah. does. He'd be like, well, this. You'd have has, to be like him if yeah. reading market. This this bit has obviously come from uh, the president. This. Is from Sergio Ramos. <laughs> These pages here are, are what Iker Casillas uh, told his his uh, his his marker buddies over the weekend. You know, I I know where all this come from. But you know, a lot of us maybe would just be looking at it going, "Oh, really? Is that true?" <laughs> uh, where you know, some of it is, but not all of it. Zlatan, Zlatan, big story today. Well, Zlatan has caused a few uh, ructions in France, um, and it's the usual. It's a it's a story which takes place in France, but could in fact take place anywhere. 
um, because what Zlatan is uh, overheard saying uh, is in 15 years I've never seen a referee like that in this shitty country this country doesn't deserve PSG <laughs> foreigner speaks ill of country in which he is living and working never tends to go down that well with the people <laughs> who live in that country and it prompts exactly the kind of responses as Marina Le Pen uh, the leader of the uh, Front National, the right wing, throw the foreigners out party in France, uh, immediately uh, responds, well, if he thinks France is a shitty country, why doesn't he leave? That's, uh, <laughs> that, I mean, that's a, pretty, that's a pretty standard response, I think, when, when people, when foreigners say that type of thing. You know, you often hear that. Um, criticised by a couple of other politicians as well. Almost as though they were seeking to make a political capital by associating themselves with a high-profile figure. In fairness to Zlatan, he... It was a... It wasn't... A, a, okay, I'm going to go and do this post-match interview and make this point. He was uttering a few words of disgust in a particularly annoyed state, albeit there were a bunch of cameras in front of him, so he probably should know that these things will get picked up. Yeah, he says, regarding my comments after tonight's game, they were not against France or the French people. Zlatan knows he can't take on the the French people and expect to win. You know, it'd be different if it was like, uh, I don't know, who was it? He said about what, oh, John Carew. It'd be different if it was John Carew or something. What Carew can do with a, a football, I can do with an orange. He, there might have been something along those lines. But with it, when it's the French people on the other side and they're in, in righteous indignation, there's nothing for it but to hold your hands up and back down, which that time does. Uh, regarding my comments, they were not against France, France or the French people. I spoke about football. I lost the game. I accept that. But I can't, ex- I can't accept when the referee doesn't follow the rules. It's not the first time and I'm sick of it. My sincere apologies if anyone was offended or took it the wrong way. <laughs> so, um, yeah, poor old, poor old Zatan. He's probably going to get banned uh, for that. But uh, banned from the French League. As opposed to... Well, he's already banned, banned, from, the and... China, already banned from the Champions League right. as well. So he could be... Well, as a band from the country, he's not. He won't actually be kicked out of France. I don't think. I don't think you actually get kicked out of France for, for saying that type of thing. Although you would be, probably not surprised at all to see how many people gets their backup. I mean, we know we're probably one of the most sensitive countries in the world when it comes to that. We really don't like when foreign people have a go at Ireland. Happy to do it ourselves, but please. Please don't do it from a, from an outsider's perspective. Jose Mourinho. A lot of people are giving out about each other in this news ranking, and mm-hmm. Jose Mourinho's giving out about Graham Souness. Well, he started that on Friday. They've been having pops at each other over the weekend. Yeah, I mean Mourinho had a big go with Souness, and it's his typical thing where he's talking about he basically it's I am so great, and Graham Souness is so small, so I'm not worried about anything he says. He did nobly uh, admit though that Graham Souness had a better playing career. Yeah, than Mourinho did. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so just the just the three European Cups uh, for Souness. Now, of course, Graeme Souness is a man who's done a fair bit of that sort of thing himself, I think, in, throughout his career. He's never been shy of of putting down people he's fallen out with. Uh, you go back to his autobiography, a 1985 autobiography. Uh, maybe footballers felt they could speak a bit more freely in those days. Uh, not everything they said was getting picked up by the press and thrown around and, you know, replayed on Sky Sports News those times. But there's lots of lots of times in that book where he makes disparaging comments about this, that, and the other person. Uh, Martin O'Neill is one of them. Uh, got himself in a situation he couldn't handle. This is O'Neill uh, against Souness playing for Notts County at Liverpool. 
ended up being stretchered off after, uh, you know, himself and Graham Sooners had contested possession. Uh, then he came up uh, in the tunnel. Uh, is he, he's prefaced the whole uh, anecdote by saying O'Neill was one of those who he liked to consider himself, a, you know, a busy player or, you know, one of these guys who was a real... Um, pain in the ass, tough, tough guy. Yeah. Um, he came up uh, while the players were waiting to go out for the second half. I mean, this is after five minutes that uh, that O'Neill was taken off. You know, uh, came up in the you know at halftime. They're getting ready to go out for the second half, and uh, O'Neill is there in his civvies. He's already showered and changed, and he and he starts taking Graham Soonest to task. He doesn't, you know, he's telling him what he's going to do to him, and Soonest. Uh, there's a Scottish guy on O'Neill's team, I can't remember the name of the Scottish player, who starts glaring uh, back down in the, in the direction of Sunus, and Sunus thinks that this Scottish guy is glaring at him, saying, you know, we're on to you, Sunus, we saw what you did out there, and we don't like it one little bit. Uh, but actually, the guy then says, kind of glancing at O'Neill, he wants to be doing that out there on the pitch, not in here in the tunnel. So what you see there is that Martin O'Neill's Scottish teammate is saying... Yeah, O'Neill. Soon as the Scottish teammate. Yeah. No, no, Martin O'Neill's Scottish. Oh, teammate, sorry, excuse me. Yeah. Martin O'Neill's Scottish teammate is saying to Soonis, his 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 opponent, his enemy for the next forty five minutes. This guy O'Neill, you know what I mean? Wants to be dealing with the field, but here we are. He's oh yeah, he's full of all the talk here in the tunnel, but once we get out in there in the field, you know, pussy cat. That seemed to be the the implication of what Soonis is. So so to my mind, <laughs> the kind of story which I don't know what Martin O'Neill's reaction was reading it. I don't know if he's ever spoken about it since. I wouldn't say he'd be too happy with the way things were portrayed. I'd say Graham Soonis in his time, I mean, although Mourinho was insulting him in a, in a manner which I think reflects really badly on Mourinho. But you think Soonis has to be big enough to take that? Soonis is a guy who's certainly done plenty of that before. I mean, Chelsea's Instagram tweeted this thing. Oh, short memories. Some people have short memories. And it was Carragher g- ganging up on the referee playing for Liverpool, you know, in the in the the manner that Chelsea were being criticised for and then Soonis as the Benfica manager having a Barney with someone on the sideline and so it's essentially the implication being that Carragher and Soonis are hypocrites to criticise us because look at what they did um, and in Soonis' case he certainly has he's Graham Soonis is not a shrinking violet you know what I mean he has criticised uh, people badly from time to time but that's not to say that what Jose Mourinho does is, is, is sensible for him I don't think it is I think it's I think it's deplorable I mean and I think it's dangerous you know it's not just it's not just kind of tasteless and it doesn't just make him look bad it stores up problems for himself as well and it's so worse than a worse than a crime it's a blunder I'd say it falls into that category when when Marina does this kind of thing I mean just just forget it you know you want to make one more point about Chelsea just watching them on the, on the day um, against Southampton, and this is exactly the kind of game that, that you think Chelsea are probably going to struggle with. You know, a, a team, a big, strong team that knows how to defend, playing at home. Uh, Chelsea are playing at home. This is their problem match. It was all, all last season. This was kind of the game they had the problem with. And whether they're going to win this game. Okay, they, they scored a quite simple goal through Diego Costa, then conceded a goal. Uh, almost immediately uh, an equaliser the penalty and they never really looked like scoring even though they, they applied a lot of pressure actually the second half they reminded me a little bit of the Ireland rugby team against uh, Wales in yeah. the way in which they were kind of battering and battering and battering and battering and battering and battering but their magic men uh, in Chelsea's case 
Branislav Ivanovic and John Terry couldn't quite come up with the the creative spark. Were the breakdowns in communication as obvious in the Chelsea game as they were in the Ireland match where you see wingers out on the wing screaming for the ball in, in, in the case that. of the rugby? I saw I that a few it, times. Zebo screaming Zeebo, for Zeebo waving, windmilling waving. his arms. Yeah, he's got, he goes, we've got a seven-man overlap out here. <laughs> if you can, so we can get the ball out of the rook and somewhere over to the to this side of the field. They, yeah, I mean, I don't know. The ch- it's, it's, it's harder to spot. You know, there, were, there weren't any passes straight into the you know the face of a Chelsea player who was looking the, the other way, for instance. As happened to Johnny Sexton at one point. Um, but you know, it, they really they are lacking a little bit of what Ireland were lacking. You know, this sense of um, this kind of thing of this is. I mean, you can you're looking at it, and there's no shortage here of determination or intensity of effort. That's all really clearly there. When is somebody going to come up with a sort of a slightly unexpected angle of attack? Why is it that's it was so? Uh, you know, there wasn't really any of this uh, this sense of. Someone can someone could do to them what what Wales had done to us, I suppose. Mm. You know the it's end. Scott Williams figure. Someone just kind of taking a slightly different angle. Brian Driscoll used to do that in those situations. I always remember him against England. Was it the 2009 England match, the Grand Slam year? Yeah. And he scored a try in that, which was the most similar to the climactic scene of the cartoon Watership Down moment in sport I've ever seen. Uh, it was. I don't know if you've ever seen the cartoon of Warship Down on. No, I don't think so. Well, you should. should. That it's sounds a, like a threat. <laughs> it's a dark... You should. It's a dark masterpiece of British animated cinema. Uh, sounds amazing. <laughs> you ha- probably haven't heard of too many other British animated... <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's because they've made too many cartoons like Warship Down, which are terrifying to children. I mean, it's all these these really evil animals with, with long f- fangs and underground war. Um, in this case, the Brian O'Driscoll character... Uh, Bigwig is his name, is up against General Woundward, who is a sort of an English, like a big English prop, uh, uh, sort of evil expression, mouth foaming with blood. And they're fighting each other underground in a burrow. Uh, with, you know, it just, it was just something about the way that O'Driscoll managed to get in there underneath all this, this sort of 800 kilos of uh, English flesh, which reminded me a lot of poor old Bigwig in the collapsing burrow. But eventually getting there on, that's the point. He got there. And uh, sometimes I wonder if Ireland and Chelsea uh, are both teams in search of their big wig. Yeah, that's the end of Ken Early's report on sport. Andrew, that's the question. That's going to be asked, answered tonight. Tonight. So now, come here tonight, tonight, into Wexford Park, and they just must produce the goods tonight. Tonight, their team is better set up tonight. Tonight. But they just, the bottom line is, Michael, they have to do tonight. Tonight. Now, I think Hawk have made a massive boo-boo with our matchups. Massive boo-boo. Tonight, 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 tonight. Miguel Delaney was at Stamford Bridge yesterday where Chelsea were... Well, Ken's outlined it very very succinctly there. I don't know if that's the right word. Jose Mourinho continued his feud with Graham Souness. We were talking about this already, Miguel, but uh, uh, is this... Even after the game, he seemed to be not in a great humour. Is this as moody as Jose has been, do you think, in his second spell? Uh, no, actually, uh, because earlier in the season when he was getting kind of those FA charges, he had those bizarre press conferences where he would just refuse to say anything in this in this extremely kind of petulant and childish way whereas this seemed a little bit more kind of uh, I wouldn't say fun 
but he was he was being a bit more mischievous. And, and I mean, he kind of just continued in his press conference after the game on Sunday. He continued what he'd been saying um, on Friday, specifically with the attack on uh, on Sunis again. Um, but you know, we all know why. that once more, it's a, a nice piece of deflection from uh, another largely unconvincing Chelsea performance. Although I actually thought they were better in the second half than they had been for some time. Uh, but there's still not that much sophistication to their attack lately. Is it actually, uh, is he really looking to distract from performances? Because it sometimes strikes me that, it, it, particularly this time around, it doesn't seem, this, this, whatever media strategy he has, doesn't seem to be as well controlled as what he brought when he first was in charge of Chelsea. Even if they had won comfortably at the weekend, uh, it struck me that maybe he would have gone on with this soon as stuff anyway, which, which seems to be completely pointless really. Well, he probably would have been a bit more uh, playful about it, I'd say, had he won. I think, I think you're right. Like, obviously, I think it still is a, a deflection tactic. It's classic. I mean, and every time he brings up referees, it's the same thing. It's just, you know, right, this is what you're going to be writing today. Yeah. Like, you, that, that, that's the stance he takes. Yeah, but, yeah, but what, 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 what people travel. are writing, Miguel, is not, well, it's not good. I mean, you know, it's like he can't help himself when he does this kind of stuff. It, well, I, I do agree with that as well. There's an element of it is calculation. Another element is... He loves to settle scores. And it's almost kind of like in a different way to Van Gaal, who's just genuinely pedantic. But, you know, we'll argue a point of principle. Mourinho also likes to have the last word and everything. And it's amazing how he goes so, um, so he goes for the jugular so quickly in, in the way kind of most people would be quite vague about it. But Mourinho immediately cuts, cuts a guy's career apart in the space of two sentences just to kind of prove some point. I mean, even last year alone, we've seen it with Wenger, the whole specialist and failure thing. We've seen it with, with Keane, as you mentioned, we've seen it with Lambert, which is such an odd grudge to have, considering you know, how far Lambert is away from him as a manager, and now lately with the, with the Sky Pundits. Mm. Listen, I mean, this is something that, that he did when at Real Madrid. He collared... Because he, he also... It wasn't just Sunis who, who was getting it, and Carragher who was getting it mm. from Mourinho. It was also a journalist, Stephen Howard from The Sun, who he, he name-checked, right? He didn't actually specifically name him, but on um, on Friday, I think we were kind of looking around the room and goes, you know, because there were so many common pieces about Chelsea on the Thursday, and I think Stephen Howard had done two of them, and he, he kind of just mentioned you know, journalists write bullshit, and then on the the next day they send someone else to the press conference. Now, to be fair, Stephen Howard was at the game yesterday, and Mourinho didn't send him to him then. Hmm. So uh, it work, works both ways. Um, but, you know, he he has tried this kind of stuff. Where it's it's always the same thing with Mourinho. So what he said about Sunis was this, uh, oh, you know, as a player, I you know, I was down here. Sunis was up here. But as a manager, I'm up here. And he's down there. This is something that he also said about Frank Reichard, unbelievably, at the time, yeah. uh, 10 years ago. Reichard went on to actually achieve substantial su- success for Barcelona <laughs> after that. But... Uh, he, he's also done this with journalists. Say, um, uh, uh, Madrid, he took one of the radio guys, collared him, brought him into a room and said, in the world of football, I am top. I and my team are top. And in the world of journalism, you are a shit. Why does... <laughs> where, where does... Does Mourinho think this gets him anywhere? I mean, if you have to go around telling people how much better than them you are all the time, at some but, point, do, do you not realise that you're losing respect from everybody by doing that? It's almost like classic thing you see with people who are... Um, I suppose we're going to deviate from football here, but, you know, it's, it was the, the flip side to extreme arrogance is also an element of insecurity. And I think it actually does tie in to his, um, to his football as well. Um, I, could, he, I mean, we've talked about this before, Ken, but for all the controversy about that Diego Torres book, the last few days, I've been reminded about it so much. First of all, in his response to any sort of criticism or controversy in, in the, kind of the use of the media. And also, 
in this entire debate about his uh, his football style and whether his only recourse is to go defensive. On Friday, in the Sunday's part of his press conference, he was asked about um, this whole thing of whether his team's play with the handbrake, handbrake whether whether he he always goes defensive, and he put up a defensive of it. And it wasn't actually all that convincing. He didn't. He didn't really go. He get, like he just. He went on kind of a long monologue about how in the West Ham game where they won one 0 and West Ham got a lucky goal, it wouldn't have mean mean they they tried. To, they didn't try to kill the game. But that was almost kind of to uh, to evade the point. And I, and I think there is an element of insecurity there about about that side of his coaching. Anyway, Miguel, the what whatever about what he says to, to journalists in particular and to even to TV personalities, I don't know how much the players necessarily care about that, but he did seem to be quite singing about the players on on uh, Thursday or on, on Wednesday, Wednesday night, yeah. after the game. Now, it seemed like by Friday he was, I don't know if he's holding his hand up a little bit more, but he was, certainly he, he didn't seem to be having a go at the players by that point. But do we know what happened in between times, whether there was any sort of pullback from the players, any sort of reaction from the players to Mourinho essentially saying they couldn't hack the pressure of that game. Um, I don't think so. I mean, ultimately, Mourinho is actually was quite rare. And a lot of other cases with Chelsea, you would have seen the, the players be quite aggravated at a claim like that. But he has such control over that squad that it wasn't going to happen. Now, they had a meeting on Thursday. He referenced it on Friday as well, in which you know a lot of the players spoke out. From what I've heard, it was, um, it, it was, it was quite a short meeting, mostly non-aggressive, non-conversational. But uh, he did blame the midfield a bit and the man marking on set pieces. Um, the, the, the one bigger issue, I think, is almost the flip side. I, I wonder whether... I mean, if you look at Chelsea's squad, it's it's relatively short with 19 players, which obviously kind of, you know, it's the way he's constructed it as well. But it's, it's not just as 19 players. It's that once you get beyond that main first 11, which he's used so much this season, there aren't that many backups that don't mean a loss of quality. I mean, pretty much the only ones are Czech... Felipe Luis at left back and Kurt Zubin's in the half. Beyond that, I mean, Mikel, he, he doesn't use Drogba, Remy. I mean, to be honest, I, I think he wanted Boney last August rather, rather than Remy. Um, Ramirez, he's barely used. Although we did praise Ramirez yesterday for, um, for, the, for the way he re- reshaped the game for Chelsea, given the trouble that Madich was having. Uh, and I wonder whether to take this, this team up to the, ne- to the next level and actually go and win a Champions League, because once he wins the league this season, and I think they will, despite all this kind of false tension about the reopening of the title race. But if he wants to go and um, push them on, you do wonder whether there'll be a lot more reshuffling of the squad, where you've got three or four players move out mm. and a few come in. Because they have maybe lost a bit of... Uh, a bit of I mean, it's just looking at the recent outgoings from the Chelsea squad, and, you know, in the last few transfer windows, you're talking about one matter... Uh, Andre Schurla, David Luiz, Frank Lampard, and Ashley Cole, which is a lot of talent. I mean, a lot of know-how. Yeah, a lot, a lot of, a lot of what, particularly Lampard and Cole. I know they were kind of coming to the end, but these are guys who, who were setting the tone at Chelsea for many years. Um, you know, don't tell me that David Luiz wouldn't be a valuable player for them for this squad. Don't tell me one Matt, they couldn't use <laughs> like one yeah. Matt. I know Mourinho is, and Schurla, you know, World Cup winner. You kind of think, well, he used to come on and actually score a lot of goals. Well, William that, never scores. This, 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 the thing. They're actually, at the moment, there aren't that many goals in the team, which is quite strange, given given, given their uh, attacking options. And I kept thinking yesterday during the match, although you could understand the decision to get rid of Sherlock from a kind of a open play point of view, as you said, he, he had that nose for goal. He, he would always come up with one in, in something like that. Um, now apparently they're, yeah, they're big fans of Quadrado, but he's still adapting to the you know to the whole style of play, the, the Chelsea approach. So it could be a while until we see proper impact from him. But then it begs the question of why they made the change mid-season, especially when Shirley could have done something on on Wednesday. I could have done something yesterday. All right, Miguel, brilliant. Thanks a million.
Cheers, lads. I wonder just how open that open meeting was between, that truth-telling meeting was between Mourinho and the rest of his team. Uh, you know, we hear, we hear, apparently Manchester United had a very good meeting where Wayne Rooney laid down a few truths. Marwan Fellaini was talking about this. Van Hal said, oh yeah, I heard about that. I wasn't there, but yeah, he said some good words, so, which is a very different dynamic to the Chelsea one where the manager is there for the tell-all meeting or the truth-telling meeting. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be letting, uh, if I was Chelsea Mourinho, the players do too many. The captain's speech, I'm not sure. I wouldn't allow John Terry too many of those. He, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't want, you don't know where John Terry's imagination, his imagination might get carried away. He, he might uh, start exceeding his brief. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, I can't imagine too many people talk back to Mourinho. Can you at Chelsea? I wouldn't say this. I wouldn't say it's a two-way discussion. No. When he says that, I mean, as Miguel said there, he blamed the midfield a bit. Um, you know, I wonder. I mean, who do you? Who do you I mean, Fabregas seems to be the one who who is most blameworthy. I mean, poor old Madrid did his best. He looked physically better to me, uh, but Fabregas really. This is this has happened to him now. I mean, a lot of people are commenting on it now. It's funny how Cesc Fabregas's form always seems to drop off a cliff after Christmas, um, and it's you know when you look at the statistics, it's the evidence is there. Um, it's a, it's a really strong case, and I think maybe Mourinho's got to look at that next season and think about how he uses Fabregas in the first half of the season to try and get a more consistent level of him because the important matches, the really big matches, all happen at this time of year. And, and that's a microcosm of the team in general. It seems like he's not getting the best out. Well, yeah, I think so. They're still limping their way towards a Premier League title, but looks for. But he's not the only thanks manager. To Manchester, thanks to Manchester City, yeah. by the way. He should he should have a medal struck for Manuel Pellegrini because this is this has been a double act. You know, Mourinho, sure is probably going to win the title, but he couldn't have done it without Manuel Pellegrini. Mourinho's not the only manager having issues with the press over the weekend? Well, there's Nigel Pearson. Let's just listen to the audio of Nigel Pearson. This is Nigel Pearson talking to Paul Rowan, uh, an Irish journalist, um, for the Sunday Times, at uh, Leicester's game over the weekend. Now, I mean, quite why... Let's just listen to the audio and we'll, we'll talk yeah, about it. Yeah, we'll just uh, the audio, the Paul Rowan side of things, you'll hear there's a bit of a, a hiss on this audio. He has to be boosted up because he's not sitting up. right there next to the uh, next to the yeah, recording device. Bear with that part of it. It's worth playing this uh, exchange. Oh, yeah. uh, Steve Bruce cited Chelsea um, in terms of the way the left player behaved to try and get Alex Bruce sent off. Did, Did they? Oh, very nice. That's fair <laughs> criticism. No. To what's, your, what's your take on that situation? With it? I've just said no. But what's your take on the situation where all the players surrounded the referee? Have you seen how many, how many times you've seen us play this year? Like three times. Well, there you are then. So you're not in a position to judge my players on, on that. I'm not judging them, I'm just asking you. Well, you're asking me and I've told you. No was the answer. So I don't think it's a fair assessment. Full stop. So do you consider that um, Leicester season is waxing or waning at this stage of the year? I don't have to use that sort of analogy. We are in the same sort of position that we're in. We've got six games at home, ten games left, six at home. Our home form has to be uh, drastically improved for us to give ourselves the best chance. That's it. You got any more questions that you want to ask? Obviously not. Yeah, good. Thank you. Waxing all the way in. My ass.
And that's Nigel Pearson. So does Nigel Pearson walk out of that room thinking, yeah, I really got the better of that um, interaction. That's, you know, another blow struck in the long struggle to keep Leicester City in the Premier League. What strikes me there is that he is deeply unpleasant throughout the questioning. Mm -hmm. He then, he does what dominant personalities, shall we call them, as managers tend to sometimes There's other other ways you could describe the type of personality you're talking about on, but let's go with that. He, He tries to shut the journalist out, intimidate the journalist, really, is what he's trying to do there. Uh, Paul Rowan keeps asking questions back. Ultimately, Rowan stops asking. You hear that really awkward silence there for a few seconds where Rowan doesn't say anything back and then says, oh, we're finished now, great. So at that point... You got any more questions you'd like yeah, to ask? In Pearson's head, you're thinking, well, he obviously feels he's won this little battle, whatever it might be. Not content with that, quick pause, short, another short pause, and then into personal insults yeah. against the journalist. That's as, he, as he's getting up to leave. Now, I just... I mean, the thing, the, I mean, people, I'm sure there's going to be some people listening to this and go, oh, this is so stupid. Like, you know, who cares? You know, the, a manager get, loses his temper with some annoying journalist. You know, a lot of people think that way. You know, people will have their own opinions on whether the questions really were that annoying. But what, what, always, what I always wonder about that is this is a guy who's, who's dealing with a situation in public. You know, he's in, he's in a public setting. I mean, the most public setting there is. Everybody is there specifically for, with the intention of reporting on what's happening here. You know what I mean? This is, there's cameras on you. There's, there's voice recorders. You are on the stage. And this is how you behave. I mean, what kind of, what kind of uh, conclusions are people left to draw about the way that you uh, behave in less public settings? I mean, this is, this is the kind of, you know, a, a, a kind of a loss of temper, uh, an aggressive confrontational attitude to a guy who's actually asking some quite innocuous, uh, at best, mildly irritating questions. Now Paul Rowan knows how those wild dogs felt. Do you remember that story that emerged about Nigel Pearson? Uh, after what incident was it early in the season, and uh, a story circulated? It was the incident where he, where he, he um, oh yeah, he grabbed the player. It was MacArthur, wasn't it? The player who had he had gone down the sideline, and, and <laughs> Nigel Pearson <laughs> appeared to pin him to the ground. Yeah, and after that uh, story, people were everyone wanted to know a little more about Nigel Pearson, and a story was recirculated. It was from Sam, an interview. Sam Wallace had a story. Yeah. yeah, an interview that he had done a couple of years ago, where he told of. Uh, a holiday been on in Romania or somewhere yeah. where he was somewhere quite remote there's some wild dogs were circling I can't remember all the details again but I do remember that those wild dogs were sent packing by Nigel Pearson they won't forget the day they, <laughs> they came to grips with, yeah, with Nigel Pearson but you know it's just uh, we were talking about the team meetings there you know we reckon Jose Mourinho's team meeting is probably quite a one directional thing and I would go so far as to say that I think Nigel Pearson's are too uh, I would not want to if I was if I was a Leicester City player. I don't think that I would be rushing to put forward my point of view. But boss, I've had an idea. What about if we? I don't think too three, many guys say that in the Leicester City dressing room. Three at the back, Nigel. No, I don't think. I don't think it's uh, one man who doesn't have to worry about team meetings for the foreseeable future is Gus Poyet, sacked today as manager at Sunderland. We're joined by Jonathan Wilson to chat a, bit, a little bit about this, Jonathan. Uh, where so the obvious question is where or how has it all gone wrong for Poyet who had some initial success at the club? Um, I, I think the the I mean I think his position has become untenable after the the defeat on Saturday the nature of the defeat. Um, I think you know the way fans reacted to that. I understandably given that it's been two home wins all season. Um, but I, I think the problems actually go far far deeper than than Poyet. Um, I mean, if you look at the squads that he had at the start of the season, compared even to the last season squad, which survived by the skin of its teeth, 
he lost Key, he lost Colback, he lost Barini, he lost Alonso. Four players who, yeah, if you're saying who were the sort of six or seven players who, who saved on the last season, they, they'd be four of them. So, I mean, I, I guess you, you question the players who've come in, but I, I think this is uh, just a, a bigger issue to do with the lack of funding at the club and. and uh, I don't want to say Ellis Short's lack of interest in the club because I think, I think that's possibly the wrong way of putting it but his recognition that the club was costing him money and his determination not to lose huge amounts of money in, in the club um, I, I mean I'm not quite sure where to start with that why did Ellis Short buy a football club if he didn't think he was going to lose at least a little bit of money um, I think like a lot of owners he, he looked at the TV deal, he looked at the possible deals for, for internet rights and things like that, and thought that it was a license to print money and, and perhaps didn't quite recognise uh, the reality that beyond the top five or six clubs, that's not the way it is. That Although there are huge amounts of money, to, to stay in the Premier League, you have to spend a huge amount of money on wages, and Sunderland is a club that, despite the, you know, the enormous cash, 46,000 there on, on Saturday, does not generate cash because... It's a. It's not a wealthy area. Uh, ticket prices are low. Advertising, sponsorship, all the sort of corporate stuff that that sustains London clubs is not possible in the northeast. And and so I think possibly, I, mean, I, you know, I, I don't know what due diligence he did, but possibly he he looked at that crowd figure and and, and saw uh, a wealthier or, or or richer club than um, than, than the reality is. Sunderland, though, is one of the richest clubs in the world. <laughs> I mean, if you, you know, uh, all of the clubs in the Premier League are, I think, in the top 40 rich clubs in the world. Theoretically, should be, Sunderland should be able to have their pick of players from around the world. Uh, I mean, they don't, they don't have any disadvantages compared to, uh, say, the bottom 14, or 13 or 14 clubs in the, in the Premier League, really, do they? So why are they chronically failing to get it together? I mean, Sunderland are now going to be it looks as though likely in, in you know in the next couple of days onto their ninth manager in the last seven years why has Sunderland proven such a meat grinder for managerial careers well I mean, that's one way of looking at it and, and I think it's probably the way most fans look at it at the moment they think well Sunderland have I think I'm right in saying the the seventh highest average gate in England they're historically the seventh most successful club in England why are they not seventh in the table the 27th richest club in the world just sandwiched in between Benfica and Hamburg yeah, I mean that. Uh, you're not that, you're not buying that interpretation or that fact. Well, I mean that that is that is true, but you've got to bear in mind that they're in a very very rich league in a in a league that's um, far far wealthier in general than the Portuguese league or the, or the German league. Um, but I, I think you've got to look at this with a bit of historical perspective as well, which is, although Sonnen has been a, 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 a term you use, a meat grinder for, for managers, this is actually the, the, the most successful period in Sonnen's history since 1958. Mm. You know, they're a club who have really struggled to stay in the top flight since they were first relegated in 1958. This is their longest spell. This is the second, in Sonnen's history, this is their second longest ever spell in the top flight. So... In, in that sense, they're, they're overperforming. So, so yeah, things have gone wrong. Managers have made mistakes. I think uh, a lot of the transfer policy hasn't necessarily been particularly wise. I think some of the cost-cutting has gone over the last two or three years has possibly been misdirected. But still, in historical terms, Sunderland are, 
or of historical terms in terms of the last 50 odd years, Sunderland are overperforming at the moment. Ellis Shore, well, overperforming, not, not overperforming to the extent that they can um, keep their manager in the job. And Ellis Short, you mentioned there, has uh, come to the realisation that he has to rein things in financially and can't really give any sort of outlay on players. I'm, I'm wondering what the relationship is like between Ellis Short and Gus Poyer, or, or, if, or if there is one. I mean, there isn't always between an owner and a manager, but Roy Keane famously was a bit put out that uh, Ellis Short decided to uh, start taking him to task for poor results after he'd, uh, he'd come on board at the club. Is there a dialogue? Has there been a dialogue between the owner of the club and Gus Poyer? Are there intermediaries, intermediaries in between there? Oh, I, in the honest answer to that is I, I don't know how direct that, that relationship is. I think it's certainly true that Poyet has been very frustrated with, with the leadership of the club. I think that's been true, I mean, really for over a year. The leadership I mean, just simply because he's not getting the money to spend on players or is, it more, is there more to it than that? That's, that's the concern also that, that Martin O'Neill seemed to have. I mean, he, he himself and Poyet, or rather Ellis Short, seemed to have their relationship seemed to completely collapse and, and also it was the same with Roy Keane. So it seems to be an ongoing thing between Short and his managers. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I think Short favours a structure where you have a director of football who, who is at the moment Lee Congerton. Um, but I, I think really, in, in a sense, what's happening now is 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 the final stages of, of a problem that began in January last year when Roberto Defanti, who was then the director of football, left the club. The Poirier didn't get on very well with him. Defanti has been briefing media um, all over the place about what a great job he did. And, and you, you, know, you listen to him speak and given the constraints to on him, you, you sort of can see some logic to what he's saying of the, uh, of, you know, the players he brought in, the way he tried to make the squad younger. And um, the, uh, you know, the, the, there was a huge falling out a year ago in January um, with uh, when Ignacio Scocco came into the club that Poyet was was desperate to sign him even though he'd, he'd been he'd been in Brazil at Internacional I think but certainly at a Brazilian club and therefore hadn't played for over two months and Defanti's argument was okay you know, he's a good player if you want him you can have him but why don't we wait till the summer because it's going to take him five or six weeks to get match fit uh, there's no point buying him now if you buy him now and he's sort of hanging around the club not playing all that's going to do is destabilise things it's going to undermine yet further the confidence of Josie Aldador it's going to make Conor Wickham ponder his future at the club when his contract was up for negotiation it, it, you know, Defanti's argument was let's wait it's, it, he's not going to help in the short term and Poit was very keen to, to get him and, and Poit got his own way and Defanti left and, and you can read this whatever way you want I'm, I'm not judging this but Scocco changed agent to Uruguay in four days after signing, mm. which, you know, particularly given some of the questions were raised at Brighton, raises further questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see how they, some people might have had, a, had some questions about, about that. But I mean, one question that was often raised. Um, this is kind of a longer term issue with Sunderland. I mean, it's something that Roy Keane used to talk about. Uh, he he always struggled to sign players. Uh, didn't really seem to know his way around the transfer market that well and often ended up bringing up guys he'd played with or knew personally and getting them to play. But he, one complaint that he always had was that players didn't want to come and live in Sunderland or in, in the environs. Uh, he seemed to suggest that a lot, of, a lot of their wives and girlfriends just weren't keen on the local area. Um, the suggestion being that their, their shallow uh, outlook on life meant that they would rather be close to Harvey Nichols um, outlets in major urban centres and, and sort of the sort of nightclubs that, I don't know, Simon Cowell might turn up at. 
um, none of which really Sunderland could boast. Is that? Do you think that's a, a legitimate criticism? I would have got the impression most footballers would be happy with a humble mansion set on several acres in the countryside, which is something I think Sunderland definitely can provide. Uh, it certainly can in, in Durham, and, and um, I think Sunderland's reputation is is uh, ill-deserved. I think certainly the north part of Sunderland is extremely beautiful by the coast, but I I, I think it is up to a point. Uh, uh, an issue that I think when when players hear the word Sunderland, they 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 think sort of grim post-industrial town. You know, what am I going to do when I'm not training? What's what's my wife or girlfriend going to do? When, you know, if she's not working. And I mean, you hear even you know even David de Gea in Manchester supposedly his girlfriend's unhappy with Manchester. So I think it's a problem that any any club that's not based in London has that London is the one city in, in Britain or in, or in England that that has that sort of glamour um, and I guess maybe for, for players from Southern Europe things like the climate come into play um, but I, I, you know I, 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 I wonder whether it is a bit of an excuse with Sunderland that it's not like Sunderland are going for the absolute cream that the players Sunderland should be signing a sort of up and coming kids from from wherever who getting in the Premier League, getting a decent wage, certainly for two or three years, that that should be enough of a draw. Um, it's not, you know, it's not like Sunderland are, are, are competing with Barcelona and Real Madrid and, and sort of great world cities that that, that would in themselves be be a draw. So uh, I, there's possibly something in it, but um, I, I I wonder if it's a bit of an excuse. What did you make, Jonathan, of uh, Tim Sherwood, who is you might say last season's good boy at this season? He's He's having the desired effect at, uh, at Aston Villa. You'd have to say uh, they, they seem to be on a bit of a of an upsurge. Where do you think things are going to stand with Sherwood and Villa in twelve months' time? Well, I think we we saw at Spurs. He, he Sherwood is good at motivating players. He is good at getting players playing. And probably after the sort of gloom of Paul Lambert, you can understand how. How Sherwood's personality would would be a breath of fresh air, and it, it would pick people up. And you know, he's had a couple of lucky breaks with um, the, uh, the the Ben Foster error to, to get his first win. Um, that you know that that got things going. He's played Sunderland at a time when Sunderland at their absolute lowest ebb and, and took full advantage. Um, so, I mean, I think he's going to save him from relegation. I don't think there's much doubt about that now. I, I think in time his, his tactical shortcomings will be found out. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if he continues to be quite as open as he has been with the media, and, and, and that, that could be another issue. But, I mean, I'm not sure he was ever ready for the Spurs job. I'm not sure whether he ever would be ready for a job as big as Spurs. But I don't see any reason why he shouldn't be a perfectly decent mid-table Premier League manager, uh, certainly until players, maybe he, he, his personality starts to... It, it's infectious and starts to wear out. I, you know, I think as a as a motivational figure, I think even at Spurs, you, you saw him doing well with that. Hey, Jonathan, brilliant stuff. Thanks, about you. Cheers, thanks, Jonathan. A self-confessed Sunderland fan, of course, proudly sticking up for Sunderland as a city. Uh, it does seem that anywhere outside London it seems like a backwater for the multi-millionaire footballers who are. But what's it, what is it that they really want? You know, I mean, it, it, because they say they want. A lot, it depends on their age and maybe their marital status, etc. But a lot of them do 
seem to just want a quiet, like you say, a quiet country mansion yeah. where they can spar each other and knock each other out a little bit. What's, you know, what, what, what more you could you... You get that in Sunderland. Could you want? And England is, is, full of, uh, is full of places like that, you know, those sort of lonely uh, country piles. And, uh, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine anything better. Maybe they like the idea that they could do something exciting if they wanted to. They could go in... Go out in London if if the mood. Took but they them. they can do that anyway, can't they? I mean, you're talking about. I mean, uh, first of all, realistically, I can't be going out all that often. You know, even the ones who are in London. Come on. No, but there are some sinister-sounding nightclubs in Sunderland. Wasn't remember Anthony Stokes was warned off black, going to the Black Spider. The black Spider. Or was it Glass Spider glass or spider, something, something like that? that. The black spider. spider is just a bit too <laughs> much like a spider. But <laughs> maybe the Glass Spider. Uh, but you know, if, if the eight-legged pl- spider. If a player, if a Sunderland player wants to go out in London on a Saturday night, he can do that. You know, what I mean, if Sunderland play at three o'clock, he he can head down to London, and you know, that's there's no there's no problem there. Uh, I, I don't. I, I always thought Keane was maybe using that as an excuse. I think Sunderland's got everything, everything that you'd want. It's just, it's something else that's the problem there. Our first show out today features Matt Williams and Jerry Thornley on Ireland's defeat in Cardiff, as discussed a little bit earlier on in this podcast. We have a look at the trouble in David Fitzgerald's Clare setup, and we reveal just who exactly was the biggest baby born in Ireland in 1964. That's all there for you. IrishTimes.com forward slash podcasts. If you want to have a listen to that one or any of the other podcasts uh, being done on the Irish Times platform, you can tweet us at Second Captains, send us an email. Irish Times at secondcaptains.com that's it from this one though Ken thank you very much thank you too thanks very much for listening we'll talk to you later in the week Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.